So welcome to the 2020 Drummond Bush Lecture. I want to thank Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary for inviting me to give this lecture. It is quite an honor. I have so much appreciation for the fourth president of Southeastern Seminary, as well as for a former friend and in some ways a mentor as an academic leader, uh, Russ Bush. And so I want to thank uh, Dr. Kenneth Keithley whom I have uh, appreciated for so many years with regard to his theology for inviting me to give this lecture, and also Dr. Walter Strickland, who I believe is one of the leading lights for the future of the Southern Baptist Convention and for all evangelical and Christian churches. The subject of this lecture is Christology without Christlikeness, and you can find uh, the full version of it, and I'll only be giving you part of it for sake of time, but you'll find the full version of it in the Southeastern Theological Review under the title, uh, Christology in Chalcedon, Creed, and Contextualization. When you think about theology, you must remember that we are creatures doing the work of theology. We are responding to divine revelation, which comes from the eternal God to us in our context. And so theology and historical context are inseparable from one another, just as the deity and the humanity of Christ Jesus are inseparable from one another since the incarnation. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is one person. And the churches of Jesus Christ also share fully in our historical bodily situatedness, even as we have a perfect revelation from God that we are receiving. So let us keep in mind that our history, our bodies, which still are being sanctified and have not reached perfection, that even as we deal with the perfect word of God, which is without error, that we ourselves in our expressions can be filled with error. And even in the ways that we express true theological statements can be problematic. When you think about a different context, we could call our current context the American world empire. We have so much uh, authority in the world, especially since the demise of the Soviet Union in the late 20th century. Well, let's go back to a different context, the context of the late Roman Empire before and really as it's becoming the Byzantine Empire. This empire, which is huge, dominates the Mediterranean and surrounding areas in Africa, in the Middle East, in Europe. There are major cities that are political powerhouses. Old Rome, which is primarily Latin-speaking, and the New Rome in the Greek East. You have cities that exercise great economic power, especially Alexandria in Egypt, but also Antioch in the area that we would know as Syria today. But then there is also a number of cities uh, that have great educational importance. Uh, not Jerusalem so much, although that is the center of the faith in a geographic way. But uh, the educational authority of the uh, school at Alexandria, of the opposing school at Antioch, and then there is the school of Nisibis, which uh, moves east with time. 
you also have, just as in any empire, a number of ethnicities, and ethnicities that are in flux as they move. We're going to see that one ethnicity actually comes into being through religious persecution gone astray over the attempt to enforce orthodoxy. You have multiple languages that are in use at the time. Not only Latin and Greek, which is dominant in the East, but major centers of speech with regard to the Coptic language in Egypt, with regard to Armenian in uh, the area north and east of the Roman Empire, and uh, the Syriac language, Persian, and so on. But we are dealing with real people in real time in the late Roman Empire. There is a definite power structure in the state, as has happened in the United States, where more and more power has been centralized within the federal institutions, especially within uh, the judiciary and the executive branches of the United States. Power was taken and located in the emperor himself. But there is also great power in a number of cities. Alexandria, under the influence of its bishop, for instance, could withhold grain from being sent to Constantinople if it wished. And so there are different powers in the state that are at work, and there are power structures in the church. And the difficulty that has come about is that the great powers within the church, the patriarchal powers over these great cities, the bishops of Rome and Constantinople and Alexandria and Antioch, uh, they are intertwined with the state. And so you have the state and the church intertwined with one another such that from whatever theological side you came, almost everyone held to this common socio-theological presupposition that unity in religion will lead to the welfare of the empire. So the suppression of heresy and the putting up of orthodoxy is what will lead to prosperity in the culture. And so this is why they held so many councils under the aegis of the emperor himself, the Council of Nicaea in 325, which took the heresy of Arius and put it to the side and proclaimed that Jesus Christ is one with God as well as being a human being. The Council of Constantinople, which made even more clear this truth, but brought into clarity also the unity of the Holy Spirit within the Trinity. The Council of Ephesus was brought forward, and we'll discuss that more in a moment, but in order to take and to put aside the heresy of Nestorius, and then the Council of Ephesus, the second one, known as Latrocinium, which is, uh, interestingly enough, coined by Leo of Rome, and it means the Synod of Robbers, or the Robbers' Synod. It met in 449. And then the Council of Chalcedon, which is our primary concern. There are major theologians at work here. Of course, you can study about Arius elsewhere. But Athanasius, in his response, in leading the church to embrace what is the truth about Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is one with God, even as he became a human being. One thing that Athanasius did not stress was that the humanity of Christ is fully his and fully his always. It's there, but it's not there strongly such that you would have a theologian like Apollinaris of Laodicea, who himself is a Nicene theologian, but he takes 
the unity of Christ with God in such a place that he ends up denying the consubstantiality of Christ with humanity. This is known as monophysitism. It is to be distinguished from meophysitism. Meophysitism is not monophysitism, although the words look very similar in meaning. They're different. According to Didymus the Blind, we must in our minds hold to the full deity and the full humanity of Christ. And we must hold in our minds the humanity of Christ even as we worship one Christ, this one person. And this is the language that comes into the idea of meophysitism. And so it's not a denial of the consubstantiality of Jesus with humanity. It is an emphasis on the unity of Jesus Christ, although it uses different language. Well, Nestorius of Constantinople uh, heard this type of language from uh, some teachers, and he became incensed. And for him, the idea that there is a uh, an ability for some Christians to speak of Mary as Theotokos, as the God-bearer, uh, sounded uh, too corrupt to him. And so he does away uh, with the Theotokos. And Sealer of Alexandria comes back and confronts him, and I think rightly uh, encourages those who are thinking through these matters to understand that the one who is born of the flesh in Mary is God himself. Not that Mary made God, but that Mary bore through the virgin birth, through the conception of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God. Well, uh, Ephesus, the first council, made sure that Nestorianism was condemned. Along came uh, some other theologians, Eutyches, uh, began to teach a monophysitism again, and Flavian of Constantinople uh, took and disciplined him strongly, and Eutyches was able to appeal to friends in Alexandria such that the empire began to split again. And Leo of Rome took Flavian's side, and Dioscorus of Alexandria uh, saw problems with Flavian. And so the council, uh, the second council of Ephesus was called it was done in such a fashion that there was violence and intimidation and threat. And towards the end of that council, Flavian, an old man, Bishop of Constantinople, was physically driven without sleep to keep walking. And north of Sardis, as he was taken into exile, north of Sardis, he eventually died. This is a sad story. Well, the new emperor. Theodosius II has passed away. The new emperor is Marcion. He was a mid-level soldier plucked by the sister of Theodosius to enter a marriage with her, Pulcheria. The sister lauded Marcion for his virtues, choosing him with the caveat that she would remain a virgin. So they had an unconsummated marriage. The new emperor, called the new Constantine, believed it was his divine responsibility to unify the empire against both internal and external threats. He brought to his task a linguistic fluency in both Latin and Greek. In the era of a pastoral Christian emperor, he saw it as his cure of souls. He's the leading imperial theologian to bring the empire together. While previous emperors convened and monitored ecclesiastical councils, Marcion ensured the imperial government actually chaired Chalcedon, 
and controlled his theological debates. Perhaps Marcion felt this was necessary because of how poorly the clergy wielded plenipotentiary authority. The Council of Chalcedon thus became, even in comparison with other ecumenical councils, a governmental tool. In the late Roman Empire, the profound, spiritually, if not mystically grounded notion was that the welfare of the whole empire depended upon the proper worship of God. Marcion thus believed peace could be achieved if the empire began by crushing heretics and reaching unity in dogma. Unity in faith and worship would bring both peace within and victory over the Huns that are threatening from the north and the Persians that are threatening from the east. As Nestorius told the previous emperor, give me the earth undefiled by heretics, and in return I will give you heaven. Help me destroy the heretics, and I will help you destroy the Persians. Orthodoxy takes on a whole new meaning in modern Western eyes when the radical interdependence of religion, economy, politics, and warfare is perceived. Right worship in their mind, guarantees imperial peace, making Rome great again. The huge church of St. Euphemia at Chalcedon was chosen as the venue for the gathering of the council, which it was hoped would restore unity within the church and bring peace to the empire. Chalcedon was a prosperous suburb of Constantinople across the Bosporus. The council set through 16 sessions, most chaired by a leading imperial official, but Marcion himself also appeared in his imperial splendor to receive the assembly's doctrinal formula. The council was conducted in every way to foster a divinely arranged mystique of consensus. Marcion wanted a formula which would compromise enough with all parties to bring his fracturing empire back together. He believed it should encompass both Miaphysites and Duophysites, reaching as many on the Eutychian and Nestorian sides of the spectrum. Even the marriage of Marcion and Pulcheria was intended to demonstrate unity, for he favored Duophysite theology while she embraced Miaphysitism. The council was composed of members representing the universality of empire and church. The extraordinary vigor of the large Alexandrian church was diminished by the sheer numbers brought from all over the Roman Empire, where the Council of Nicaea recorded just over 300 members. And the Council of Constantinople listed less than half that. The Council of Chalcedon included nearly 600 bishops from throughout the empire, alongside numerous lower clergy, court officials, and delegates from beyond the empire. The imperial senate proposed that the bishops appoint a diverse committee to create a universally accepted doctrinal formula. Some objected that a new formula could not be created after the Nicene Council. The modified creed of Constantinople was probably brought forward as a way to silence that ob objection. So after the reading of conciliar documents elicited positive acclamations during the second session, a decisive moment was reached. The drama is high. Atticus of Nicopolis rose to move that the emperor's representative, quote, order it to be granted to us that within a few days what is pleasing to God and to the Holy Fathers may be formulated with calm reflection and unruffled thought. A broadly representative committee was chosen to compose a formula made up of uh, bishops from all over the empire. 
Theologically, the committee was comprised mostly of bishops who had supported the canons of the council held under Dioscorus. Moreover, no major duophysites were represented, so it should have been a uniting committee. The committee sought unity as best they could. Indeed, during the subsequent reading of the draft before the council, the Theotokos had to be added to the confession. In addition, Rome had to demand that Leo's tome be incorporated. So Cyril's language of from two natures was changed by a single Greek letter into in two natures. According to the modern translators of the council's momentous fifth session, the new definition, while Cyrillian in its expression, was so worded as to be acceptable to Rome. A Solomonic composition indeed. Alongside the universal character of the council's participants and the representative nature of the drafting committee came the unifying setting of the meeting itself. The bishops gathered physically on both sides of the gospels, which were set in the middle between them to represent the Christological center of their common faith. The bishops were arranged so as to indicate the unity enjoyed by old Rome and new Rome. So their political uh, competition between Constantinople and Rome is done away with. Both sat on the same side and close to the emperor as the head. The division in the seating was not where it might be accepted, expected in a political setting between East and West. Rather, the division occurred between Egypt and Palestine, which was overwhelmingly Miaphysite on the one hand, and Rome, Constantinople, and Antioch, along with their lesser seas on the other hand. Now, while the empire crafted everything at Chalcedon to emphasize universality and unity, their ideal of justice first required a division, especially in light of recent history. Heretics in thought and morality must be banished in order to obtain peace. The leading culprit was Dioscorus of Alexandria, who was called to sit before Anatolius, the imperial delegate, to face judgment from church and court. His accuser, who joined him in the center, was none other than his old opponent, Eusebius of Dorylam, recently returned from fugitive life in Rome where he had fled. Eusebius accused the Alexandrian patriarch of promoting the heresy of Eutyches with violence and bribery as, as well as through Flavian's murder. During the proceedings, dramatic movements indicating formalized divisions were made when Juvenal of Jerusalem led a Palestinian delegation to cross the central space and enter the seating arena of the Antioch party. The same visible disuniting with Alexandria and reuniting with Antioch and Rome occurred when Peter of Corinth and numerous Greek bishops crossed over to the other side. The Antiochians welcomed the converts with shouts of, God has led you well, Orthodox one. You are welcome. Alexandria questioned their sincerity, calling upon the converts to give an account. Some responded that they had just learned Flavian actually agreed with Cyril. Others said they were bullied into signing blank confessions. As the documents from the robbers' synod were read aloud and various witnesses were brought forward, Anatolius maintained tight discipline. However, at points, the proceedings were interrupted by shouts. When Theodoret of Cyrus entered, the Alexandrians cried out, have mercy, the faith is being destroyed. The canons of Ephesus exclude him. Drive him out. Drive out the teacher of Nestorius. The Oriental bishops likewise moaned about their mistreatment under Dioscorus at Ephesus too. We suffered blows and we signed, drive out the Manichees. 
Drive out the enemies of Flavian. Drive out the enemies of the faith. Raising the temperature to its highest, they called for judgment. Drive out Dioscorus the murderer. Dioscorus fought legally for his dignity, but he was deposed along with several others. It is striking that both sides, even as they divided over the leadership of Dioscorus, they proclaimed their devotion to the one Christ. They all also refuted heretics considered outside the center of the faith. Dioscorus, distancing himself from Eutyches, who at points was too monophysite even for him, said, for my concern is for the Catholic and apostolic faith and not for any human being. My mind is fixed on the Godhead and I do not look to any person nor care about anything except my soul and the true pure faith. Basil of Seleucia, a duophysite, distinguishing himself from Nestorius, said, I worship our one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, God the Word, acknowledged in two natures after taking flesh and becoming man. So they all centered on the one Christ, even as they blasted various perceived errors regarding the unity in one another. Every Christian creed comes in a cultural context, and Chalcedon may have been the most difficult context for achieving theological unity ever. In spite of the unitive desire of the emperor holding the sword of judgment, divisions for the sake of justice and final unity were required first. In spite of the pious desires of even its most combative members to center on Christ, divisions were plainly visible to every eye. In spite of its brilliant dogmatic language with its sensitivity for balance, the Council of Chalcedon became the context for a growing historical rupture. In spite of its imperial and episcopal framers' hopes for unity, the history of nations and the piety of of persons worked against formal unity. Before summarizing the historic divisions, look at the formula itself. I'd like you to notice, and I provide this for you, uh, the, the two natures of Christ are consistently upheld along with the one person. And moreover, the generation of the Son eternally from the Father is affirmed, as well as the begottenness, the generation of his humanity from Mary is upheld. So following the saintly fathers, the Chalcedonian formula says, we all with one voice teach the confession of the one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. The same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and a body. Consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity. And the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity. Like us in all respects except for sin. Begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity. And in the last days the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards his humanity. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. So the unity, and I put that in bold italics for you, the unity of Christ is affirmed, but also the two natures, and I put that in italics for you, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one in the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. 
just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creed of the fathers handed it down to us. I think this is one of the most brilliant theological statements ever to be formulated, and yet it came in historic dissonance. Marcion, pastor, theologian, and emperor, called the assembled clergy to pray, hoping that because of your prayers to the Almighty, a peace that is both swift and universal will be granted to us by God. Providentially, however, the peace he sought was neither swift nor universal. Why did peace not come? Only God knows the answer as to why he ordained or allowed, if you wish, historic dissonance rather than historic harmony. But if asked to guess why the ancient church fractured, I would say it was their misconstruction of peace and the means to it. The accepted truism shared by Cyril and Nestorius as well as Leo and Discorius, who were opponents to one another, was echoed in Marcion's prayer and desire to enforce the ending of discord due to many being in error over the faith. A godly desire for concord in Christological definition among Christians is one thing. The use of means antithetical to the character and command of Christ to bring about that concord is quite another. They had Christology without Christlikeness. The council's own revulsion against Dioscorus's abuse of Flavian should have demonstrated to all those present that wielding coercive social measures to create theological harmony fosters further discord. Putting your theological opponents on trial in an imperial context, separating them from their own churches through extra-local juridical means, driving their supporters into exile, all while hurling religious anathemas against their religious pieties, these are abhorrent. Idolatry. Irreligious worship, evil liturgies, yes, these are abhorrent too. But self-justifying measures, whipped up indignation, evil means to good ends, these are also vile. I remind us that Jesus commissioned his church to make disciples of all nations. But the Lord gave us the proclamation of his word and the presence of his spirit as his chosen means to do so. Contrary to imperial and ecclesiastical usurpations of conveying peace, on display long before, during, and after Chalcedon, it is Christ alone who conveys peace. What of peace? The Constantinian confusion of Christ's eternal kingdom with a temporal kingdom bequeathed both Western and Eastern Christianity a troubling legacy. It is not by raising hateful shouts and unbared swords that we witness to Jesus and offer his peace to the world. Rather, by this, Jesus said, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. For all their knowledge of scripture, the powerful leaders of the late Roman Empire abused both peace and the means of attaining it. In spite of the brilliant Christology available in Chalcedon, the council served to divide ancient Christians rather than unite them. According to Avril Cameron, the struggle to define orthodoxy was the technologizing of the issue. The traditional view was that orthodoxy was fixed and therefore need only be discovered and defended. Somebody like John of Damascus believed theological knowledge could be had through establishing philosophical principles, creating a catalog of heresies to avoid, 
then constructing theology according to the fathers and the councils. Many still operate in the same way. The struggle to define orthodoxy, therefore, became marked by a continually narrowing set of definitions. Those theological conclusions which were tested by manipulation and defended by polemic and invective brought about the loss of open discussion. Orthodoxy and intolerance enforced through violence in the state legislation of religion have thus become synonymous. Historically, orthodoxy has been more elusive for the church to perceive and receive. Harsh measures from book burnings to mutilation of people only inhibited the communal perception and reception of theological orthodoxy. Moreover, the cost to individuals, whether abusers or abused, ranged from hypocrisy to seared consciences. According to Cameron, the effort to create a culture of orthodoxy must be deemed unsuccessful. But we do not have a single agreed Christian definition, and we still struggle with the legacy of those early battles. And if you're aware of your Christian history, and Christianity, by the way, was centered in the East at this time, the church split into factions. The Egyptian church, based in Alexandria, Millions of Coptic Christians actually begin to develop a religious identity over against that of the Roman Empire. And the Coptic church developed an historiography where they saw themselves in three eras, the glorious age from the foundation in the first century to its formative role in the definition of Nicene Christianity under Athanasius. The second era began with Chalcedon's excommunication an exile of their bishop, Dioscorus, which was followed by a bloody, protracted struggle between his followers and their imperial rulers. The third era began with the fall of Alexandria to the Muslim invaders in the 7th century. The long Arab era is deemed a miracle of survival, marked by adaptation and resilience in the face of non-Christian oppression. It ought not be lost on us that the division within the late Roman imperial Christians allowed Islam to expand in its military force. So are the Coptic Christians heretics? Well, the empire persecuted them as such. But as the Pope of the Coptic Church told an audience at the University of Michigan in 1977, the Coptic church was misunderstood in the fifth century at the Council of Chalcedon. He says clearly, we are not monophysites. The Coptic church never believed in monophysitism, and they did not. The problem is, is that division came anyways. Outside the empire, you have other churches that are not under imperial control, and they were strongly Miaphysite. This includes churches in Armenia, Ethiopia, and Nubia. Africa itself had a strong Miaphysite theology, and yet it was cut off from the West. In the East, you have developed churches that actually were part of the same ethnic identity at one time with the Roman Empire, but because of the persecution of the Miaphysites, the Syrian Orthodox Church developed, and it developed its own 
cultural, religious character. So you actually have the development of a culture out of persecution between Christians that were once united in culture. The same thing happens with the martyred church, the great church of the East. It has never held to Nestorianism as it had been condemned, but simply refused to join with the anathema against the Nestorius at the Third Ecumenical Council. And all of these churches, moreover, have been in conversation with the Church of Rome and other Western Christians, and they affirm clearly that they actually believe many of the things at Chalcedon, but they have to use their own languages to say these things. Oh, the division brought about by the misuse of power. Advancing Orthodox Christology without a Christ-like spirit. What lessons may we learn for today from this long, turbulent, and tragic history? I believe theologian Jean Coman of the Romanian Orthodox Church traces a way forward. He writes, It is not by its structure that an ecumenical council is infallibly declared to be such, but by the power of the church in its entirety, out of the consent of the church. And that's the important term, ex consensu ecclesiae, with the continued assistance of the Holy Spirit. He argues the authority of a council can only be known by its free reception into various churches as a matter of convincing consciences. I would look to Acts 15 and 16 for a similar account. It is as the Holy Spirit leads both those who speak and those who hear that we come to agreement regarding theological claims. While I will not apply infallible to any post-biblical council, Coleman correctly receives the definition of Chalcedon as, and I agree with him here, a masterpiece of intelligence and piety among all other dogmatic statements. It is a great statement. He reminds us that even in the Chalcedonian churches, there were continual attempts to undermine the definition of Chalcedon. These Roman challenges came from various emperors and were manifested in monophysite and monothelite synods held within the empire. Three subsequent ecumenical councils defended and clarified Chalcedon's confession. Since then, the Chalcedonian confession has developed deep roots in both Eastern Orthodox and Western theology and piety. I hold to it deeply myself. The Confession of Chalcedon is increasingly being recognized by even non-Chalcedonian churches because they are pressed in conscience to see it as their own faith if confessed in a different way. The former difficulty was that alien terminology was pressed upon subject peoples by the powerful Romans, but now that empire is gone and the churches are speaking to one another again. With this history and this theology, please allow me to make seven applications from the contextualization of Chalcedonian Christology to our contemporary historical context. First of all, grace, orthodoxy, literally right glory, must be understood as a divine grace not yet fully seen. As a grace, orthodoxy is never something humans may possess. We may only receive grace. As a grace, it is not something we create, nor can we control it. 
as glory. Orthodoxy is something we experience only in part now. Orthodoxy is something we should pray for, teach toward, and receive with thanksgiving. I do it with my whole life as a systematic theologian and a, 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 a teaching pastor. But we need to know entire dogmatic perfection comes by grace from the one who comes at us from the future. Secondly, analogy. Christianity, as both an eternal and a temporal phenomenon, participates by grace in eternal truth, but always within the limits of human embodiment in history. If we use Chalcedon's Christological teachings in an analogous way, we can say that the human aspect of our theology grounds us in history, while the divine revelation for our theology provides us hope for perfection. Of course, as an analogy, we must remember our own abstractions may be lacking. Thirdly, diversity. The human, historical, contextualized aspect of our Chalcedonian analogy requires us to remember that ethnicity, geography, and language will always render distinct pieties which may sound odd or inappropriate to Christians who live outside particular churches. These oddities must form part of our ongoing discussions, for it is while respectfully listening in an orderly manner to one another as prophets, following the lexedetium of 1 Corinthians 14, that the churches may be led by the Spirit to discern more clearly the light of God's Word. Number four, unity. The eternal divine aspect of Chalcedonian Christology requires us to recognize that among those truly born again by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, if I may import Reformation-era soteriological concerns, there resides a common participation in the very life of the triune God. Our unity is guaranteed, hear me clearly, our unity is guaranteed only by the presence in each of us of the spirit of holiness. Our unity is substantiated only in the word of God intended for each of us. Our unity is guided only to the glory of God alone. Number five, imperfection. The human, historical, contextualized aspect of our Chalcedonian analogy requires us to remember we have not yet arrived in the state of seeing the glory of God. We must wisely recognize that within us there remains a battle against the principalities and the powers, the demonic ideologies which invade both world and church. We must perceive evil not only in our communities, but also in our own hearts. And we must refuse to act toward or be compelled by others to act toward that evil in ungodly ways. Theological evil may be manifested in either unorthodox goals or in abusive means to reach orthodoxy. Number six, one king. God may providentially allow apparent Christian triumph in imperial context or any other context of power to be tested by imperial dissolution. No human empire whether based in Rome, Constantinople, Seleucid, Tessaphon, Baghdad, Aachen, Frankfurt, Addis Ababa, London, or Washington, D.C. No human empire ought to be confused with the kingdom of God. And no magistrate or cleric ought to confuse himself with the king of the kingdom of God or with any of that king's sole prerogative. Christ Jesus will rule alone without and against our 
petty personal quarrels, lofty theological abstractions, and political machinations. The universal church and the churches local have a monarch, one ruler, and he is not standing or sitting here in the flesh yet. Finally, cruciformity. The Lord Jesus Christ called his disciples to turn the world upside down by overturning the paradigms of tyranny which characterize the cultures of the nations. You know that those regarded as rulers of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and their superiors exercise authority over them, but it shall not be this way among you. Instead, Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. He also said, whoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The way of Christ's people before his second coming is the way of the cross and humility, not the way of glory and domination. The Lord will triumph in the end, so have faith. The question before us now is this. Will we make the hard choices to align our personal lives and our ecclesiastical cultures with his cross-bearing way? Or will we repeat the horrific errors of the Council of Chalcedon even as we honor their impressive dogmatic formula? Thank you.